but happy Father's Day. Can we give all the fathers a round of applause? my second year as a father. Um, I've managed, along with my wife, to keep a child alive for two years, which is harder than you might think, um, at least if it's my child. She gets herself in many dangerous situations. Um, but, but Father's Days are a bit difficult because it also just, um, it brings up all kinds of uh, uh, feelings. For some of you, there's like a, a, a joyful emotion, right? Like you called your dad the second you woke up and you couldn't wait to talk to him. Um, others of you, you haven't talked to your dad in ages. Um, for me, it brings up the emotion of I lost my father three years ago and wanting to pick up the phone and call him. The other, the other emotion that I, I had, particularly this Father's Day, maybe it was because as I was leaving the house this morning, um, I think my wife had coached um, my daughter Eloise, who's two and doesn't yet speak in complete sentences, to say Happy Father's Day to me. And so she ran up and gave me a hug and mumbled something about Happy Something Day. And... Um, but as I was hugging her, uh, right before I walked out of the house, um, I was just overwhelmed for a split second with emotion, not simply because I was there hugging my daughter, which is beautiful, um, but because of the images I've seen this week uh, and the talk of, of, of parents being and families being ripped apart. Um, I, I'm a fairly moderate person in every area of my life, like I just kind of just float along like this, and you could convince me with good arguments of just about anything. You give me the right data set, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. But where, where I, I can't go with you is when you use scripture um, to justify tearing apart families and... Um, because the, the, there's, there's a lot of things about the scriptures that we can argue about, but the one thing that I do know is that, is that you will, we will be judged by how we treat children. Right? The scripture is very clear on that. Um, we will be judged by the way that we treat the least and the way we treat children. And I just, in this Father's Day, I just wanted to, to say that and to remind us of that. Um, let's say a quick prayer and then we'll dive in. And God, we just, um, we thank you for fathers. We, we thank you um, for people who have made an investment in our lives. Um, some are our biological fathers and others are spiritual fathers. Others are people who took us under their wing and fathered us when nobody else was around. Now, I thank you for those people. And I just say a special prayer today for families who are separated for a million reasons, um, but especially for families who are separated um, because of their, their status and their country. I pray that you just comfort them and that you would change the hearts of our country and our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we left off um, after David had made a giant mistake. Um, David ends up correcting his path and, and, and gets back on track, but, but there's collateral damage, and which is how the mistakes in our lives always work, right? Like we make a mistake, we end up correcting, but there's always collateral damage. Today we're going to take a look at another story of David where he almost makes a gigantic mistake, but at the last minute he is saved by a woman, um, which I'm pretty stoked about because scripture tends to be written by men and tends to paint men into most of the stories, so yay for women. Um, you are going to save the day today, as you do most days, at least that's what my wife tells me. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk about the golden rule. The golden rule is this, do unto others, very good, this morning they just looked back at me, I was like, did no one ever teach you the golden rule? 
and explain what's, no, never mind. Um, which is great. The golden rule is great. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's biblical, by the way. Some of you might not have known that. It's from the Bible. That's great, though, until someone mistreats you. And then the golden rule for you, or the rule that you want to live your life by, is do unto others as they have done unto you. Right? That, we, there's something inside of us. There's something innate inside of us, innate, um, that, that when we are mistreated, when someone wrongs us, that we want to get even. We want to get back at that person. If someone hurts us, we want to hurt them. Right? We just, we need, we need that, that sense of retribution. And the problem is, is that often when we are mistreated, there is a power differential. So the person that mistreats us, we have no way of ever impacting, right? So um, maybe they are over you, maybe they are just so emotionally detached from you that nothing you can do can hurt them. And so what happens when you are hurt by someone and there is a power differential, you still want to take it out on somebody, you still want to lash out on somebody, which means you end up often getting even or taking out that anger on those who are closest to you, right? This is why spouses, um, this is why spouses abuse one another, right? Because they, they have this anger at someone else and they end up taking it out at home. This is, this is why bosses like chew you out and you're like, what in the world did I do to make you so angry? but they're just mad at someone up the chain that they have no control over and they can't in any way get to. And, and we don't want to appear weak and we don't want to let ourselves be taken advantage of. We want to show that we're strong. Which brings us back to David. David's story takes place about 3,000 years ago in 1000 B.C., um, the story of David goes like this in a quick nutshell, at least um, to the point we're at right now. Um, David, at age 15, is a shepherd boy. He's not really seen as being anyone that special. His brothers are much more impressive. Um, but David um, ends up killing Goliath with, uh, with, uh, with a stone, and he becomes overnight the most popular uh, person in all of Israel. He becomes a cult hero. Everyone celebrates David. And, and his fame and stardom begin to increase and re increase. And over the next seven years, from the age of 15 to the age of 22, David becomes the most powerful military, um, one of the most powerful warriors in all of Israel. And he also becomes one of the most becomes increasingly famous. Uh, he has this on-again, off-again relationship with his now father-in-law, King Saul. And his best friend is Jonathan, who's the heir apparent to the throne. I mean, David has gone in a few short years from being in the fields to being at the center of power. But David ends up having um, a conflict or continuing conflict, jealousy issues. Um, his his father-in-law, Saul, is jealous of him and from time to time tries to kill him, which is a bit stressful, as you can imagine. It makes family dinners difficult. Is this the one where, where dad is going to try to off me? Um, and so eventually things get so bad that David becomes a fugitive for the next seven or eight years. So age 22 is kind of the high point for a good chunk of David's life because at age 22, he goes from being at the center of power to becoming a fugitive. And he spends the next eight years until he's in his early 30s, like 30, 31, as a fugitive in the desert, running for his life. And, and along the way, he picks up a merry band of men. Um, he has his posse that goes with him everywhere. And, and I like to think of them as like righteous outlaws. They, had like, they were fairly honest. They weren't, they weren't stealing from people or doing dishonest things. But they were just trying to make do. So David is out there making do. 
And, and that's kind of the backdrop of the story that we're going to read today. I'm just going to warn you, uh, today is ridiculously text-heavy. Some Sundays we like read, I don't know, four verses and we're done. This Sunday I lost track. There's so many slides I couldn't hardly keep track of them all, which is really going to make you excited and want to pay attention, I know. Um, but I think it's, I, this is such a fascinating story, and sometimes I think it's great just to actually let the text speak for themselves. And so today is one of those days, so we're going to dive in. So 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning with verse 2. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. It's shearing season. And you need to know that shearing season is essentially like the moment that some people will sit down with their accountant at the end of the year and the accountant will tell them how wealthy they are. It's typically, if you're part of the 1%, which this person in the story is, it's a good thing, right? So that you sit down with your accountant and they're like, this is how wealthy you are. This is how much your wealth has increased this past year. And which is essentially what's going on during shearing season. It is a, it is a, it is a time when you are account for your wealth. So it's a very festive time. Verse 3, his name, this man, was named Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was, intelligent. she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. In other words, he was rough around the edges, and she was a classy person. Verse 4, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, go to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. This is a festive time. They're showing up in the middle of a festival. And David tells his men, now say this, now I hear that the shearing time, I hear that this is shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. So he's saying to Nabal, right, when your shepherds were out, in the, like my, my, me and my band of merry men have been hanging out in the fields along with your shepherds. In fact, we've been providing them with protection. So he said, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. And then it says in verse 8, ask your servant and they will tell you, therefore be favorable to my men since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servant and your son David whatever you can find for them. So that it shows up at the party, shows up at this festival time. There's there's drinking, everyone's in a good mood. Typically, if you were to ask, hey, can you share a bit from your largesse? They'd be like, yeah, totally. Take, take you know, a little extra. But that's not how Nabal responds. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Now, he knew who David was. Everybody knew who David was. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He's like, he's an outlaw. Why, why am I going to give anything to this outlaw? Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, so they get back. They're like, he blew us off. And David says to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. David turns to his guys and said, it's going down. Like, we are not going to let this man insult us this way. Now, my guess is at this moment, you might be judging David because he just has been spurned and instead of like, oh, that's too bad, his reaction is, let's strap on our swords and let's go slaughter some people. 
But what you need to understand is that, and this is like moving from scripture to science, is that, is that, self, that self-discipline is a muscle. You only have so much discipline, and then it begins to dissipate. There's some fascinating research into this. This is why when you're trying really hard to diet and to do something that takes a ton of discipline, you find that it's harder to have discipline in other areas of your life. And so David has been being very disciplined for a long period of time as an outlaw in the wilderness, and he is exhausted, and he's been on the run, and he is frustrated, and he wants to make somebody pay. He wants to get even. He's got all this pent-up anger, not just at Nabal. He's also upset at King Saul, and he can't do anything to King Saul, and Nabal is right there within reach. He can take out some of his revenge on Nabal. Again, it's easy to judge him, but I guarantee you that you can think of a moment in your life where someone did you wrong and you want to get even. You have already begun to formulate the words, the speech in your head that you're going to say to them. You've already begun to formulate the zingers, the one-liners that are going to make them cry. You are already feeling in your heart how joyous and good it's going to feel to watch the tears drip down their face. I know some of you have done this before. And what happens is in this moment when you are formulating these heart, hurtful, harmful things you're going to say to this other person, at the same time, you also begin to justify your actions. They had it coming. They're an awful person. I cannot believe that this person would speak to me this way. They need someone to take them down a notch or two. And so you begin to justify it. But as you begin to justify yourself, you begin to get more and more angry. And, and, and to the point where you literally, by the time, if you do have the encounter, you just explode on the person. Well, that's what's going on with David. David is like, he's riding, him and his men are riding towards Nabal. And he begins playing over everything that's happened over the past few years, how unjust Saul has been to him, how unjust every, the situation he's been in, how he does not deserve this. And this guy, Nabal, is acting in the exact same way. And it is finally time that the 1%, those people with more than they know what to do with, it's finally time that they pay. Now, he's partially thinking of King Saul, but he's going to take it out of Nabal. And so he's just getting more and more and more angry. And he is ready. We're going to read in a moment. He says, I was going to slaughter everyone. David is ready to shed blood. Verse 14. But one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David's messengers from the wilderness uh, sent from the mess- David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were there was a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. They're like the whole time we were in the fields, they protected us. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man, but nobody can talk to him. Like Nabal is beyond reason. Verse 18, Abigail quickly acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five dressed sheep and five measures of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go ahead, Go on ahead and I'll follow. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she was riding her donkey into the ravine, there were, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. There is tension in that ravine because David has really worked up a head of steam, and so she is going towards a very dangerous situation. And so she met them. Verse 21, David had just said, 
It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his went missing. And he has paid back evil for good. This is him justifying what he's about ready to do. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now David in this moment, he's a nobody, he's a fugitive, he's an outlaw, he has no social standing, she's wealthy, she has social standing, but yet she humbles herself, she's trying to find any way she can to take the tension out of the room or out of the ravine in this situation. Verse 24, she fell to, at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention to my Lord so that the wicked man Nabal, or pay no attention, my Lord, my Lord, to that wicked man named Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with them. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. Now, David at this moment has not agreed to not kill anyone, right? David has made no agreement. But yet she says, as surely as the Lord my God lives and as you live since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself she is projecting the future she's painting a picture saying David you don't have to do this thing you're about ready to do David I am already seeing the picture where you are not someone who is avenging with bloodshed she gives David credit for being better than he was she calls out the best that's inside of David then in verse 27 and let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty to my Lord, for my Lord. So now she's starting to project towards the future. Like, there is a moment. I know you have a calling on your life. I know you believe that God has a special plan and a purpose, that you are someday going to sit on the throne of Israel. Right? There's a day when you will have a lasting dynasty. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. And even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. Now, this is interesting. So this, this phrase, bound securely in a bundle. In the ancient world, your wallet, the thing that you kept your uh, valuables in, um, was essentially a cloth that you would kind of cinch up. So you'd put your coins or whatever you're trying to keep safe. You would cinch it up and you'd bind it and then you would put it on your belt. You'd keep it close. And so essentially what she's saying, the imagery she's using to David is, God will put you in his wallet. Like, you are valuable. You will be treasured in the same way that something worth a lot is valued and treasured. But then she says this. This is fascinating. But the lives of your enemy, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Again, remember last week's story? It alludes back to the story of Goliath. Over and over throughout the David story, there's, it keeps, there keeps pointing back to that high point, that moment as a 15-year-old kid when he had no power and no influence and he had nothing on his side other than God and the amazing things took place. She is looking back and is like, you remember that moment, David? Remember when you hurled that stone out of that sling? That's how it's going to be your enemies will be. They will be hurled away from you as from the pocket 
of a sling. I think that's fascinating that she pulls back on that story. But I think ultimately what she's trying to say to David is this. David, when there is nothing more to this story, when there is nothing more to this moment, what story do you want to tell when it's nothing but a story? Like someday, David, when you are looking back on this moment in time, what's the story that you want to tell? Do you want the story to be that you were a person who, was re- who exacted revenge? Do you want the story to be that you slaughtered innocent people because you were angry? David, God has something amazing in store for you. God, David, God has a dynasty in store for you. You have your future ahead of you. Someday when all you have left is a story to tell, what is the story you want to be told? David, you do not want this to be your story. And then verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. David, what story do you want to tell? David, someday when this story is being told, what do you want? to be remembered for. And it's at this moment that something clicks inside of David. Something that she says gets through to him and the pressure in that ravine just dissipates. And we read, David said to Abigail, praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. David, there's just something breaks inside of him, and he like, has this realization, I can't believe what I was about ready to do. I was about ready to slaughter an entire family and all their staff because I was angry. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal. And he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. And he has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Now this, this part always makes me a bit uncomfortable, but the thing, actually the, most, the oddest part of the story is about ready to come. This is uncomfortable enough though, like the idea of like God killing someone because they crossed you. This is a different world. David lived in a different world. But I do like the general sentiment that like God fights our battles for us. Like, we don't have to exact revenge. There is justice in the universe. It is not ours to fight. But then this is the odd part. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. So like 10 days, he's dead. (laughs) Remember at the beginning, she's beautiful and intelligent. David's like, okay, she's pretty smart. Uh, Let's... Verse 40. 
His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servant. Abigail quickly got on the donkey and attended, her, her, attended by her, first, or her five female servants and went with David's messenger and became his wife. And they lived happily ever after. The end. <laughs> they didn't. If you have multiple wives, it is not going to live happily ever after. Anyway, um, Two, two things. One is completely unrelated. Uh, I, I, I realized, like, I, because there's so much text, I was reading at a fairly rapid clip. And so I went home this afternoon, and I was with, um, El, I was reading a book to Eloise and my goddaughter. And um, as I was reading the book, uh, my goddaughter Isabella, or Izzy, um, said, uh, do you always read so fast? And I thought, I am reading at mock speed. It's because I've, this is, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't normally read this fast. Okay, there's a couple things going on in this text that I think are really interesting. The one is there's three different ways that people respond to being wronged or to the situation. The first is Nabal, and he takes what is good and he responds with evil. I mean, that's just, we would all agree that that's wrong, right? Everyone agrees that, like, when someone does good to you, you shouldn't respond in evil. Like, he's just a jerk. But the second way is, is the way that David responds. And David repays evil for evil. And that's pretty ordinary. Um, in fact, in the ancient times, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that was actually sanctioned under the Old Covenant. It was fine to, to return evil for evil, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It says this in the Scriptures. This is how you can respond. David's response to want to get revenge, to get even, seems to make perfect sense. But then there was Abigail, and even though David meant evil towards her and her house, she responded with good. She did something remarkable, something extraordinary, something out of the ordinary. And what I find interesting about this is that all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. David is kind of living into this, this general ethical framework that we find in the Old Testament. But Abigail is actually embodying something we don't really fully see until we see the life of Jesus in the early Jesus movement. This says, yeah, you've been wronged. Yeah, you've been hurt. Yeah, people have mistreated you and talked poorly about you. But there is a better way to respond. There is a better way to live in this world. Jesus, or Peter, who, who, who saw the early Christians unjustly persecuted. So this isn't just some dude writing from a, a cushy ivory tower looking back on another time, but this is of someone who is in the middle of a persecution who also is quite well in, attuned to the message of Jesus. Peter writes these words, 1 Peter 3, 9 through 11. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. But on the contrary, we play evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. It says, look, when someone does something wrong to you, instead of getting even, which all it does is make you even with someone you don't even like, it makes you like someone that you don't even want to be like, instead bless them. 
I said this morning that that doesn't mean that you wipe away everything that they did or that you act like you just have to act like they never wronged you or you keep putting yourself in a, in a, in a bad situation over and over again. That's not what this means. But it means that even those people who have wronged you, who have hurt you, who, who have spoken ill of you, that you seek their blessing, that you pray blessing over them, that you seek the best for them. Because... On the contrary, we pay evil's blessing because this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. As you bless others, you too will be blessed. The Apostle Paul used to talk about it this way in kind of a weird phrasing. He talked about burning uh, coals of fire on your enemy's head, which as a child I like to just think of burning literal coals on my enemy's head. But, but what Paul was saying was be so kind and nice to them that like use kindness to burn, like to, to make them uncomfortable. Bless people who curse you. But then Peter does something interesting. He actually quotes from the Psalms, possibly the words of David. He says this, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. And they must turn evil from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes along after the Old Testament, and he shows us what this looks like in the flesh. Jesus shows us a new way of living. Peter, in his admonition to bless those who curse us um, or to, re- to replay evil with blessing, Peter is pulling on the words of Jesus. And Jesus, when he's walking among us, says these words in Matthew 5, 43. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's easy. Everyone loves, their, loves those who love them. But I tell you, love your enemy And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The way of Jesus turns everything upside down. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that makes logical sense. People should get what they have coming to them. That makes sense. But what we quickly discover is that it doesn't work. And Jesus comes and says, there is a better and a more beautiful way to live. You can be free from the pattern and the cycle of retribution that you've found yourself caught in. There's a way of joy and peace and kindness. So as we conclude today, I have three questions I just want to ask you. Number one, do you really want to be even with someone you don't even like? Like, do you really want to be like the person you don't even like? Because each time you're offended, you have two options. You can get even and be even with that person, or you can pull ahead by responding the way of Jesus. You can pull ahead by refusing to respond in the same way. Number two, and this is the story I think, this is the question I think that's most powerful on Father's Day, particularly for those of us who, have, who are shepherding a, a child, but it's important for all of us. This just I'm thinking of it as a father. What story do I want to tell? Now, some, uh, hopefully Eloise is too young and not soaking everything I do up, although I think she probably is because I've said a few choice words and then she repeats them, and that's another story. So... Um, But someday, Eloise is going to tell a story about her father. What's the story I want her to tell? That every time someone got mad or talked poorly, 
or cursed me, that I responded in kind, or that even when people were unkind to me and even when people treated me unfairly and unjustly, I responded in love and grace and peace. That's the story I want to be told. What story do you want told? And then number three, what would it look like for you to return good for evil? To use Peter's words, to bless someone who has hurt or offended you. What does it look like to give them grace? This, I honestly believe, is one of the most powerful opportunities we have to be like Jesus. Because every single one of us in this room has been hurt and offended and mistreated and spoken ill of. And someone has talked behind our back and treated us in a way that is unfair. And I guarantee you, if you sat down, sat me down and told me the situation, I would agree with you. You're right. They were unfair. That was unkind. But what would it look like to return good for evil? What would it look like to pray a blessing over someone that has caused you harm? They may not even know it. Partially, it's so freeing in your own life when that person pops in your head, instead of beginning to think of how you're going to get even with them, just to pray, hey God, would you please just bless them? Would you give them abundant life? Would you send good things into their path and help them to be people who flourish? That begins to play with your head if you begin to, every time you want to bring down curses, to begin to bring down blessings. And I think that this is one of the easiest and the best, or not easy, but is one of, the, one of the, mo- the most powerful opportunities to be like our Father in heaven. It's one of the best opportunities to do something that's not just the ordinary thing, but to do the extraordinary thing. But for some of you, this practice can actually be life-transforming and it can free you. Because for some of you, for so long, you have been formulating how you're going to get even with someone. And the truth of the matter is, the sad thing about the situation is often that person has forgotten you even exist or forgotten that that situation even happened. And you are formulating how someday you are going to get back at them and they are going to pay. The problem is, is that you are eating yourself up inside. And if you would begin to reframe it, how can I bless them? How, how can I repay good for evil? That you, there, I think you can free yourself. There's a better way of living. There's a more joyous way of living. Don't settle for getting even. Even is easy. Don't just write an ordinary story, but write an extraordinary story. Do for others precisely what they don't deserve for you to do. Do for others precisely what they don't deserve for you to do, like your Father in heaven did for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, the gift of your Son. We thank you that even though we were broken and flawed, that your Son entered into creation and offered himself up, and even though we killed him, that he offers us salvation and grace, that we are offered blessings instead of curses. I pray, God, that you would shape and form us to be people who seek good even to those who do evil to us. In Jesus' name, amen.